we're going to be doing Matthew 24, which is the last days according to Jesus. Uh, it's a technical section. So, Father, I pray for understanding, for wisdom. I pray, Lord, that we could hear what your Son says without all the voices that might be speaking from years past or ideas that we have. May we hear what Jesus says. So would you give us those kind of hearts? And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So to get the context, you actually have to back up from chapter 24 to verse 37 of chapter 23, and it says this. It's Jesus speaking again. It's all read for just pages and pages. Jesus has given woes, and then he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is going to launch into this discussion with that context. Sunday, I said, if you look at the flow of Matthew, what happens is Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is rejected. We don't want this man to rule over us. We don't want this new kingdom that's built on a whole different kind of system where it's not retribution, rather it's forgiveness and, and restoration, reconciliation, loving your enemy as yourself. We don't want that kingdom. And if you don't want that kingdom, what happens is the only other kingdom is the kingdom of darkness full of war and junk. And it's breaking the king's heart right here. Jesus, his heart, his heart is broken. I know what's going to happen to you. I know what this choice is going to do to you. All right? That's the context. So with that, chapter 24, Jesus left the temple and was going away. I think that is more than just historically what he did. It's like back in Ezekiel chapter 10, where you have the glory of God departing from the temple because of their idolatry right before King Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys the temple. You have a very Now Jesus is, if you would, Ichabod. He's leaving this place. The glory of Jesus is departing from the temple. It's very, to me, symbolic of the same thing that happened in Ezekiel chapter 10. So he leaves the temple, and when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, he answered them, you see all these, don't you? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now this was an ancient marvel. I saw one of the stones, it's 42 feet long, it's five feet tall, and it's six feet deep when I was in Israel back in June, massive. Jesus says, not one of these things, not one of these stones are going to be left on another. So immediately what happens is verse three. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. So the disciples just heard from Jesus, this temple, one of the ancient wonders of the world, beautiful, this temple is going to be gone, destroyed, not one stone upon the other. Now that would be very hard for them to hear because the national identity of Israel was tied up in that temple. It's what made them Israelites, really. It was their bragging rights in a way we have Yahweh in our midst. But because of that, here's what they thought. It's Jeremiah chapter 7, 
where the people are being told Babylon's coming and they're going to destroy this place. And they keep saying, no, the temple of the Lord, no, the temple of the Lord, no, the temple of the Lord. What they were saying is that could never happen to us. God would never let that happen to his temple. He'd never let destruction come. So they were trusting in the temple, not really in God. And Jeremiah goes on to say, no, it's coming for you. So these guys are saying the same thing. No way. How is this possible? That's hard for us to imagine that we would lose all that, our national identity, to see our country go down in that way. I think the same thing is, is probably happening to some of us in our country, where you see certain decisions and you see certain directions that our country goes, and you think, how is this possible? How are we changing so fast? Morally, we're changing. What 20 years ago was just kind of common knowledge Now, if you voice that today, you can be arrested. It's a hate crime. So now it's changed so dramatically that mm, it's a very different place. Our place in the world, kind of where do we fit on the world stage now, is changing dramatically. What's going to happen in the next 10 years? And for some people, these changes can be very hard. For me, I'm excited by them. Because I think what has happened since about the 60s is there's a class of people, and I just think they're cultural Christians. It's, hey, I'm an American, and yeah, I believe in God and Jesus, but it does nothing to transform how they ever have lived their life. They're just cultural Christians. There's no identity with him. There's no relationship with Jesus. And so when things start to change, what happens is there's a dividing out of those things. And what happens is there always emerges, you read history, a vibrant group of people that pursue Jesus with passion, and that is the fertile ground for revival. So all this stuff makes me happy because the punch the clock Christian who comes and says, well, I'm going to church to make God happy, to get him off my back, that's gonna go away. And it's gonna be people that say, I am sold out for Jesus. He is so beautiful. I want to be a part of his kingdom. I want to see it come. I want to be used by him. I want to inquire of his temple. I want to see what he has for me to do. That's Christianity to me. So even a couple years ago when gay marriage was legalized, people freaked out and they asked me, what do you think? What do you think? I said, I'm I'm pleased with that. Here's why. Because what will happen to individuals that have been for years, just saying, if I could just get married to my partner, life would be good. They're going to get everything they want, and will life be good for them? No. So Psalm 106, verse 15 says, God gave them their request, but sent leanness to their soul. I ain't going to make you happy. So to me, that's just fertile ground. You got everything you've wanted for. You've always thought this is going to do it for you. Is it really going to do it for you? No, because Jesus is the answer. That's fertile ground for Jesus right there. Is it good? fertile ground for Jesus. So these guys are going through that right now. Like, this seems really hard. We're going to lose the temple. We're going to lose our city. This seems really hard. And so they start asking some questions and scholars debate how many questions do they ask? Is it one question all tied together by connective conjunctions in the Greek? Or is it two questions? Or is it three questions, right? So let me read it again. Tell us, when will these things be? I'm going to say that means um, the throwing down of the stones of the temple. When's the temple going to be destroyed? When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? How many questions? Is it? I think, this is Matt Heverly, If you look at Luke 21, which is the Olivet Discourse in Luke, you look at Mark 13 as well. The disciples tied all these things together. If the temple is going down, it's the end of the world. So their eschatology was super simple. It was, okay, if this is happening, it's so cataclysmic, it has to signal the end of everything. So whenever this takes place, whenever the temple is destroyed, then with it is going to come these other events right along with it. They're all tied together in their mind. And here's why. Prophecy is like this. It's, um, I was hiking the Pacific Crest Trail this lap three weeks ago or whatever. And our first leg was you hiked to Mount Thielson. Well, Mount Thielson is just this massive mountain. It seems like it's right there. 
And so as you're hiking, it just feels like, hey, we're almost there, right? But you're not. And so we got to this one section. I thought, man, we're really close. And then we started doing these, these switchbacks. These switchbacks were a mile long, and they were just separated by like 100 yards. So you're just going on these really, these, these ravines, really, that are really steep, just back and forth, back and forth. And you're like, man, it's, we should be right there. So while we're doing that, Brandon Buchanan just said, I'm done with this. And he just plunged off the edge of, the, of one of the trails, ran way down and just hooked up, cut off about two miles. So when we caught them, Peyton Logue said, all right, you can never tell people you did the whole Pacific Crest Trail. <laughs> he said, I don't care. I said, are you jealous of him right now? <laughs> Sometimes that's prophecy. It, oh, it's right there. But we don't realize all the switchbacks that are in history that take you to that point and all the other things that happen before you ever get to Mount Thielson, before you ever get to that. So it's a very common mistake. It's what these disciples are doing. Hey, when is this all going to happen? And they clump it together thinking this all has to happen at one point. Now, if you've read Matthew 24... And if you read commentaries on this, there's a million ways to interpret this chapter. And it's just across the board. So I'm going to just tell you where I fall. I am a classic pre-mill with a lot of progressive dispensationalism. <laughs> yeah, you're going, whatever. <laughs> okay, progressive does not mean I'm voting for Ralph Nader, okay? It means that there is a progression in prophecy where things build. So progressive dispensationalism has this tagline, already, not yet. So when a progressive dispensationalist <clears throat> looks at scripture, he says, there's an already aspect to it that's been fulfilled, but there's also a not yet aspect that's still to be fulfilled. There's some zigzags between this that we don't realize before you get to Mount Thielson. We think they're together, but there's some zigzags in there. So that's a progressive dispensationalist. Now, why do I like that? Because Jesus does it. So if you want, for your own study, read Luke chapter 4, and Jesus talks about his ministry. And he quotes in verses 18 and 19 from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And he quotes and quotes and quotes verbatim. But if you look at Isaiah 61, verse 2, and Luke 4, verse 19, when Jesus quotes it, he stops midway in the prophecy. He says, I've come to declare the acceptable year of the Lord, the Lord's favor. And then he stops. Well, that prophecy continues and it says, and the coming of his wrath and judgment. So what Jesus just did right there was, I'm fulfilling the first part of this, the already part. But listen, there's a not yet part. I'm doing this half of it, if you would, but mid-sentence, it's stopping, and there's some zigzags before we get to the wrath part of this prophecy, okay? Peter does it in Acts chapter 2. So he quotes Joel when he talks about, hey, this is that which the prophet Joel spoke of, that there's going to be this outpoint of God's Spirit. It's going to be poured out on everyone. There's going to be prophecy, and there's going to be signs and wonders and this great stuff. He stops midpoint in Joel and doesn't quote the whole thing. Again, there's an already not yet. So I'm a progressive dispensationalist because I think Jesus was, and I think Peter was, and I think Paul was, and here's why. I used to be a dispensationalist until this one thing kind of caught me. If you look at pure dispensationalism, um, Paul believed in the immediate return of Jesus in his life. That's how he wrote. I'm just waiting for Jesus to come back. But if you're a dispensationalist, a pure dispensationalist, then Paul was wrong. Because Jesus couldn't return until the temple had been destroyed and then there was a rebuilt temple and the man of uh, lawlessness had, been, um, had come up. There's all these things that need to happen before Jesus could return. But Paul did not live like that and he did not write like that. He wrote as if it could happen right now. Now, if Paul was a progressive dispensationalist, it works. Now, if this is all confusing to you, all right. Here's what I can tell you is going to happen in this chapter. I'm going to fly over it at 30,000 feet. And some of you are going to be really upset at that. You're going to be like, I wish you'd do a month of prophecy updates, but I'm not. And other of you are going to feel like, I just drank from a fire hose. Like, I do not get this at all. <laughs> all right? It's going to be like cilantro. 
There's going to be those that are over here, and I'm going to divide the room with this chapter. But I'm going to go pretty quick because you can get stuck in this. But I have a simple way of looking at Matthew 24. I believe Jesus is a great teacher, and he answers their questions. He doesn't get goofy. He just answers their questions. Hey, you got some questions? I'm going to answer them. And I think they ask really two major questions. When's the temple going down? And secondly, um, when is all this other stuff happening? So Jesus first answers when the temple's going down, and then he answers, hey, when am I returning? And when's the end of this age? Okay, so let's go. First, he does a little bit of an intro, intro to almost like flatten the ground. Okay, before we get into the nitty gritty, let me just do an introduction to this study. So this is what he does, verse four. Jesus answered them. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. That's Jesus's intro before he launches into answering their questions. And I think Jesus just says this, life is like pregnancy. Life is like a pregnancy. Who here is a parent? Raise your hand. Do you remember like your first child and just the mystery of pregnancy? Like remember Braxton Hicks? those crazy things. So I can recall when my wife first had with our first child, Carissa, she had Braxton Hicks. I'm about to freak out. I'm like, get in the car. Should we go? What's going on? Right? It seems like, hey, it's here. Let's go. But it's not, right? It's false. And it would be, uh, you'd have a premature baby. Like there's just just crazy things the body does. Um, After a while, by our fifth child, man, Braxton Hicks, I'm like, you're okay, woman. Come on. Buck up. (laughs) And she did. She knew, right? I've told my wife she needs to write a book, how to raise your first like your fifth, because you are just, you're so much just better and more even and not anxious. So there's this kind of thing, Braxton Hicks, there's this weird kind of thing that happens. Jesus says the world's like that. There's going to be these things that happen in life, Braxton Hicks, Braxton Hicks, over and over and over again. And he says, don't be worried about it. Be like your fifth child. Don't be worried about it, right? That's what he's saying. Do not, verse six, do not be alarmed. You've rejected my new kingdom. Okay, fine. That kingdom would have been peace. That kingdom would have been epic. You've rejected it. So you get this other kingdom, which is nation rising against nation, just like it's been throughout history. Babylon rises up. The Medo-Persians rise up, kick their tail. Medo-Persians are strong for a while. The Greeks come, wipe them out. Greeks are strong for a while. The Romans rise up, wipe them out, right? That's just nation against nation. Just this stuff happens, this cycle, these things over and over and over. Don't freak out, verse six. Don't be alarmed. But what do we do? I remember at 18 years of age, we had Gulf War I with George Herbert Bush. And I'm in college And I remember going to church, and guess what we did? Man, we freaked out. Oh, no, the end is here, right? And then Gulf War II with, what was, oh, no, it's the end. Gog and Magog are coming down, all this kind of stuff. We go chicken little. And Jesus is like, this is the the pattern of life. This is the pattern. You rejected my peace, and the pattern you get is this pattern right here. Don't freak out. Jesus lays the groundwork. Don't freak out. I'm the king. Don't freak out. It's like pregnancy. Here's what I love about pregnancy. What does it end in? Brand new life, right? It's hard and it's painful, no doubt about it. I remember when Carissa, my first, was born. Like, it is brutal. No one can prepare you for it. You just have to go through it. Like it's brutal and there's tears and it's longer than you ever expect. It's crazy. But I remember when I held Carissa Jaden, I immediately forgot all my pain. 
<laughs> Sorry. Right? There's new life. It's like, oh, it's all worth it. There's my eschatology. Man, this world, there's going to be pain, but it's going to be all worth it. Something is being birthed right now that's going to blow your mind. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 24. He says that the whole earth is groaning and travailing in childbirth, waiting for what? The manifestation of the huyases of God, those that have been adopted into his family. When we finally come into our own, when we are finally perfected humans, the earth is groaning for that moment. That's what we want. Restoration, renewal, new birth, new kingdom. That's what's coming. That's good news. That's awesome. So don't be alarmed. We're not at the push stage yet. That's what Jesus says, right? So then he starts to answer. Verse nine. First question was, when's the temple going down? Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It's a real simple saying there. If you see vultures circling, what's down below? A dead creature. Verse 29, immediately, very important, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. I believe, yeah, great text. I believe that is answering the first question. And we'll see why, if you look at verse 36, Jesus immediately begins to answer the next question, all right? So let's pick our way through this. We'll try to take little bites of it, um, but it's hard. So verses 9 through 14, you have to answer this question. If Jesus is answering, this is going to happen before the destruction of the temple, then whatever he talks about in verses 9 through 14 had to occur before AD 70, right? Because that's when the Titus comes into Jerusalem, ransacks the temple. Did all this stuff happen before AD 70? Well, let's look. They're going to deliver you up and put you to death. Were Christians put to death before AD 70? Totally. Yeah. James, Paul, Peter, Stephen. Nero was around. He got crazy about 64 AD and started his nuttiness until about 60. I think he died in 68. So he had four years of just bloodshed. Absolutely. Um, you'll be hated by all nations. Rome in 49, there's a Claudius, the emperor at the time was Claudius. 
he made this decree. He kicked all the Christians and Jews out of Rome. And here's why. He said they were worshiping some guy named Crestus. The Greek for Christ is Christos, probably just a Latinized Crestus. And they were going around saying he was alive. And he said, from now on, if you plunder a tomb, you'll be killed for that. It's a capital offense. So it was a reaction, Rome was having this reaction by 49 AD to this incoming thing that was beginning to transform their society. And they reacted with anger. Get out of here. We hate you. Please don't be in our city. So absolutely. How about many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead men astray. Did that happen? Oh my goodness. Galatians is all about that. First Timothy, about half of it is about that. Second Peter is all about that. Jude is all about that. Colossians, majority of it is about false teaching, false prophets. If you look at the New Testament, about 20% of it is talking about, look out for these false teachers that are in our midst. So absolutely, that one. Um, you can go on and on. Were there earthquakes? Yep. Massive earthquake in Laodicea, 60 AD. Massive earthquake in Pompeii. 61, should have moved out because there's a worse thing coming very quick for Pompeii. But big earthquake there. There was just earthquakes. Famines? Acts chapter 11, right? Agabus, the prophet, stands up and begins to say, look, a big famine's coming. The churches of that time of Galatia actually got together, took up an offering to send down to the church in Jerusalem because they were so famished from the famine. So if you go through this, you can find very simply all this stuff happened before AD 70. Wait a second, you might say. It says that the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. What about that? Okay, here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 18. It's already happened. He says the same thing in Colossians 1, 6, that the gospel has gone out to the whole world. Same term, all right? You have in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, the people responding and saying, these are the guys that because of the gospel have turned the world upside down, right? So at this point, the gospel has gone out to the entire known world at this time. It's infiltrated everywhere that was known to this place. So absolutely, that one as well. So in my understanding, Jesus is answering that first question all the way through this. And then From verses 15 down, it's just this giant mouthful, and it begins by this, and this is something you have to know about in Bible prophecy. Verse 15 says this, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, what's that? Daniel 9, and we know at this point, there was a reference that would be in the mind of these disciples because they had felt that the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel had already been fulfilled. And when was that? It's 167 BC. This guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, his name literally means God manifest. He thought he was God. He is a complete nut job. He was ruler of a part of uh, the Greek empire when it was split into four. And he was overseeing kind of the Turkey, Middle East into Egypt. Well, Egypt revolts. So Antiochus Epiphany gets his giant army together and they march down to put Egypt back under their thumb. Well, on their way down there, they're in pretty close to Egypt. Out in front of their path comes this 80-year-old man named Gaius Papalius. And he goes up to this giant army, to a guy who thinks he's God and says, stop. So the whole thing stops. And Antiochus Epiphanes is like, dude, what's up, man? Get out of my way. I'm going to chop your head off. And this guy says, no, you turn around. Don't you dare step foot in Egypt. And so Antiochus Epiphanes asks what every kid asks, who says so? And he said, Rome. And Antiochus Epiphanes knew this. Rome is now the big dog. He knew, I cannot fight Rome. And so he's sitting there talking to this man thinking, how do I save face in this situation? I've got one 80-year-old dude. I've got my massive army. I think I'm God, and I know I can't keep going. And so he said this to Gaius Papalius. 
Uh, let me consult with my generals and I'll get back to you. And Gaius Papalius took his cane, this old 80-year-old dude, and begins to scratch this circle around Antiochus Epiphanes. And he encloses it and he looks at him and says, you'll give me your answer before you cross that line. Woo! <laughs> and so Antiochus Epiphanes packed up, turned around and headed home. But on his way, he was so bent and angry that he said, I'm going to take care of those rebel Jews on my way out. And so he turned into Jerusalem, just furious, and ransacks the city, goes into the temple, sets up an image of Zeus, slaughters a pig, puts its blood all over the place, forces the priest to drink the blood, outlaws the Torah, you can't read the Bible anymore, outlaws circumcision, you'll die if you circumcise your kid, and outlaws the keeping of the Sabbath. If you keep the Sabbath, circumcise your kid, or if you're caught with the Bible, off with your head. All right? That's what he does. That was the abomination of desolation. Well, if you know the story, here's what happens. There's this guy named Mattathias. He's got five kids. I call him Matt with five kids. (laughs) He leads this revolt called the Maccabean Revolt, and they push Antiochus Epiphany and his crew out, And we celebrate, we don't celebrate that. The Jewish people celebrate that as the festival of lights or Hanukkah. So just a brilliant story. So that's ringing in their mind as Jesus brings up the abomination of desolation. You mean this is going to happen again. Something's going to happen again to the temple, right? This is temple terms. Just like happened to the temple before, it's going to happen again. And here's what Jesus says. When you see this stuff taking place, run, right? Get out of Jerusalem. Don't grab your stuff. Don't grab your cloak. Don't grab anything. Get out. It's kind of like what they tell you on an airplane. If this airplane wrecks, what are you supposed to do? Get out. Don't take your bags. Does anyone do that? Well, there was an airplane wreck back in August 3rd. And, and, and it was terrible, like a terrible, terrible accident. I think I have a picture of it, I hope. Okay, it burned. See that? But like, that's a bad accident. No one died in it. It's just a miracle, okay? So the, the, it, and it became this national story. They, the stewardess was like, get off the plane as quick as you can. We're starting on fire. You got to get off this thing. Don't take any bags. Well, did they obey? Well, look at the next picture. How many bags does she have? She's got four bags. I think she was grabbing other people's bags, right? Like, if you're not going to take that laptop, I got it, right? She is now known on the internet as the bag lady. (laughs) All right, Jesus is saying, don't do this. You got to get out of here so fast. Do not do this. Run, run. And here's what's interesting about history. The Christians, we can get rid of that picture. Yeah, (laughs) The bag lady goes. The Christians, when they saw this stuff, they got out of Jerusalem. So if you go back to AD 68, and you have the Christians reading Matthew 24, they didn't have Matthew 24, it was just the book of Matthew. Guess what they thought this actually was applying to? Them. And they obeyed it, and they got out, and their lives were spared. So the Ancient Christians interpreted this section as speaking of the events of AD 70. That's how they looked at them. That to me is very important. They saw it right here. It's happening to us. Get out right now, okay? And I love personally verse 19. In the middle of this, this rejection of the king, this, that, hey, you guys are bringing this upon yourself. This is what Jesus says. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days. The empathy of King Jesus. Oh, this is so bad. And my heart aches for little babies and women who are pregnant. My heart aches. You, you could have had a new kingdom. You could have had all that. You could have had peace, but now you get pain. Hmm. Love Jesus. And so you got to come down now, to, and, I, and I'm doing a 30,000-foot flyover. Verse 29, then, we got all this kind of, okay, okay, okay. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. So if this is the temple time, then what is this about? The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And there's going to appear in heaven the sign of the son of man. Wait a minute, Matt. That did not happen in AD 70. Well, some commentators will say this. Because Jerusalem was burned 
It was burned so hot that the gold on the walls melted. That's how hot it was. I mean, it was hot, hot fire that actually the sun and the moon for three or four days were not visible just because of the smoke. We have it in our valley, right? Get a big forest fire, what happens in our valley? Same thing. You can't see the sun. It's miserable, right? So there are some that say that. That's not what I say. And here is um, my basic hermeneutic when I look at the Bible. Some people say the way to interpret the Bible is to find out how the Greeks use the language. I don't believe that. Now, there's great people that do that. I believe the way that you interpret the Bible is you look at how the Bible uses those terms. And so what you can find is Jesus right here is actually quoting from Isaiah 13. And I'll read it for you. Feel like a fire hose yet? Yeah, it's this chapter. Chapter 25 is brilliantly easy. Chapter 26 is incredible. Chapter 27 changes the world. Chapter 28 changes the world again. So this is the tough chapter. After this, it gets just unbelievable. So Isaiah 13, verse 10, listen to this. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place. So Jesus is speaking in Aramaic. There's a translation, very, very similar. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 13, because here's what Isaiah 13 was about. It was about the destruction of Babylon. This city called Babylon is going down. What Jesus is saying right here is this. Jerusalem has become the new Babylon. Because you've rejected me because of your sinfulness, I am equating you to the worst city in the Bible. Because you murder and kill the prophets. Because you refuse to receive your king, now you are being rejected just like a city called Babylon. So, That's what I believe is happening right there. What's the sign of the Son of Man? Again, Revelation. Where does Jesus get the name, the Son of Man? Did he make it up? Mm -mm. It's Daniel chapter 7. Read Daniel 7. Phenomenal chapter. You have these beasts, four beasts, dreadful beasts that come up. They trample people. They hurt people. They're destructive. The final fourth beast is this mega beast that's crazy, right? And then finally it says, God, the Almighty, puts a stop to it. But he allows some of the beasts to continue. And then right after it, it says this, and there appeared in the heavens, one like the Son of Man, and unto him was given a dominion forever and forever. So Jesus is using Daniel chapter seven right here. I do not believe this is return language. I believe this is inauguration language. It is Jesus now is going to be trampled, right? Destroyed by the cross, by a bad government, by people in power, by a beast, if you would. But good news, he's going to ascend and take his rightful throne beside the Father. And you can read 1 Corinthians 15 if you want more on this. Verses 22 through 24, 25, really fascinating when it comes to the kingdom. Because it says Jesus is reigning, but he has not yet squashed all his enemies. They have not been put under his feet. But when he does, he will present the kingdom to his father. So this is what I call inaugurated eschatology. Part of it has begun already, but there's a part that's not yet. The part that has begun is Jesus is king. But guess what? He has not yet squashed all the enemies. He's calling you and me into that partnership, in fact. It goes all the way back to King David, where you see the same thing with King David. David is anointed king at 16. Does he reign at 16? How many years is it? Until he's about 33 years old. And then he starts to reign as king. So there's this inaugurated, hey, you're the king. But guess what? He is running for his life. He's running from Saul. He's almost killed. He's not even living in Israel. And then finally, he comes into his kingdom. So it's inaugurated eschatology, progressive dispensationalism, all that kind of bearing down on this, all right? I know that's a ton, and I know it's hard, but there you have it. Well, what about this generation in verse 34? Here's another thing I think is real important. It's called authorial intent. It means Matthew wrote this book under the inspiration of God's spirit, and he intended his words to be read a certain way. And we can, from the 21st century, try to say, well, we want it to mean this. Well, I don't think that's fair. So I think when Matthew wrote this generation, 
He meant this generation. If you look throughout the, the book of Matthew, Jesus uses this generation in Matthew eleven sixteen, And he says this, hey, what shall I say about this generation? You're like children in the marketplace. We played a flute for you, but you wouldn't dance. We played a funeral song for you, but you wouldn't mourn. John the Baptist came preaching repentance and strictness. I came preaching grace, but you haven't responded to either of us. Is he talking to a generation way away? No, this generation. You can look again at Matthew chapter 11, verse 41, where he says, the queen of Sheba will rise up in judgment against this generation because she responded to the words of King Solomon, but there's one greater than King Solomon that you have not listened to, right? You can go on and on. Or you can just look back at chapter 23, verse 36. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. So I believe this generation is that group that's going to be around by AD 70. So my 30,000-foot flyover, Jesus has now answered the first question, temple question. Second question, okay, when are you coming back? Now look at real carefully what happens immediately. But concerning that day, verse 36, an hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. What is the thing Jesus does not know about? His return. Acts 1-7, they ask him again, hey, when, is this, when are you gonna come back? Jesus again says, listen, I don't know. Only the father knows. Why doesn't Jesus know? I thought he was God. He is God, but he's also man. So in Philippians 2, it tells us this, that Jesus took all his God power, and if you would, he put it in his pocket and said, when I live on earth, I won't access these powers. I won't use them. I'm gonna live an earthly existence just like any other human by the power of the spirit in a prayerful, prayerful subordination to the Father. So Jesus, when I read about Jesus, I say, you know what? If I do the same thing, I can live like Jesus. It's his, we're seeing his humanity. He's taken his God, if you would. He's 100% God, never changes, doesn't not become God, but he decides, Philippians chapter two, to say, all that power, I'm not gonna use it. I'm gonna live as a full human, demonstrating how life is to be lived. So he doesn't know. He put that, if you would, in his pocket and doesn't use it. All right, so... Um, we'll keep going as quick as I can. For as in the days before the flood, for, verse 37, excuse me, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. What's he talking about now? His return. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant when his master will find him so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place that where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here's what Jesus says, and I'll be real quick. He says, my return is gonna be sudden like the flood with Noah. So, People were eating, people were drinking, people were getting married, people were working jobs, people were paying bills, people were just living their life, and then one day it started to rain and it didn't stop. It was sudden like that. The return of Jesus is going to be just like that. There will be no warning. 
eating, drinking, marrying, paying bills, boom, Jesus returns. So Jesus says, verse 34, 44, therefore you must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I don't know, Jesus says, and neither will you. And yet, what do we always do with prophecy? Try to figure out the day he's coming, all right? If you figured out the day he's coming, verse 44 says you're wrong because it says he's coming when you don't expect him. So if you're saying it's this day or this time, you're absolutely wrong, right? It's gonna be the day you do not expect. It's gonna be the nut job dude that gets it right. We're all like, he's so wrong and he gets it right because no one expects him to be right, right? It's gonna be something like that. So Jesus says, in light of that, do these two things. Number one, stay awake, verses 42 through 44. And he gives the analogy of a thief. Thieves don't give you times, do they? Hey, by the way, I'm going to come to your house at 2 a.m. and steal everything from you. Right? What What would we do if they did that for us? We'd wait with a surprise for them. Probably not an apple pie. Jesus says it's going to be like that like a thief in the night. No one is going to be expecting it. So if we want to be ready for his return, guess what that means? We gotta be living like it every day. We have to stay awake. And I said on Sunday, the only way you stay awake is if you're goal-oriented. If you set goals for yourself, like I want to be ready for his return. I wanna be prayed up. I wanna be reading my Bible. I want to be doing, I want to be serving. I want to be giving in my time, talents, and treasure. I want to be pushing back against darkness. The only way you do that is if you're intentional on it. I have not met the person yet that is um, alert and on it unless they are saying, I'm making some plans in that direction. You don't fall into sanctification. You don't fall into alertness. You don't fall into it. You are diligently pursuing it. You're saying, I want to be alert. I have a vision for it. And now I have some methods by which I put into my life so I keep walking this thing out. Or you will fall asleep. It's just that simple, right? So his second point, very tied to it, is he says this. It's verses 45 through 51. It's kind of a parable. And the parable just means this, keep serving. It's verse 46. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. It doesn't say the master will find him so thinking or even believing, as important as believing is. Our belief will become what we live. It will be what we live. That's James chapter two. Blessed is the one that's so doing. I stopped counting the number of conversations I've had with men who will say this to me? Oh, Matt, I used to. Blank, blah, 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 blah. I used to go to that Bible study. I used to lead that. I used to be on missions. I used to go to church. I used to serve. Now this is what I say. Great. What are you doing now? That's great. But what are you doing now? I have yet to hear verse 49. Well, I'm beating my servants and I'm drinking with drunkards because <laughs> I fell asleep. But I haven't heard that yet. I'd love that if somebody did. You guys have to be careful. We just get lulled into sleep. If you're still on earth, you have a purpose. God is not done with you. God's supposed to be using you. And when you discover it, you get joy, but you're also protected. It's when you stop doing the stuff you're supposed to be doing, serving and giving out, that all of a sudden you find yourself, man, how am I getting drunk all the time? How am I angry with this person? How's all this stuff coming down on me? Well, you stopped just simply serving. You stop doing what you're supposed to be doing. You lost purpose. You lost direction. And now you're just kind of upset and agitated and you take it out on people. It's just, it's naturally what happens. The way you prevent that is, man, I got to keep serving. I'm here on earth for a purpose. And until Jesus takes me out, I'm going to pursue that purpose with a vengeance. That protects you. And it gives you such great joy. There's no greater joy than to be walking with your king and serving him. So that to me is Matthew chapter 24. And what I see in it is, and from a progressive dispensational kind of view, is there's these cycles. You got to know some of them are Braxton Hicks. That's just life. There's wars, rumors of wars, famines, 
earthquakes. You got to know empires will come up and empires will fall. Don't put your faith in the empire. As much as I love America, and I love America, my faith is not in America. My faith is in my king. And I know he's returning at the right time. And I'm not even worried what that time is. I just know today, I want to faithfully, faithfully serve him. Today, I want to build his kingdom. Today, I want to be found doing. I, not, I, I don't want to be alarmed and freaking out about stuff I shouldn't be freaked out about. I just want to be doing faithfully what my king has me to do because it brings me joy and it protects me from a bunch of garbage. To me, that's the big message in Matthew chapter 24. And we get into chapter 25 where Jesus gives these incredible parables, these stories. And then we get into chapter 26 where we see the humanity of Jesus like nowhere else. It's one of my favorite chapters. It's a chapter I read often because it gives me comfort that my king knows exactly what I'm going through. And then chapter 27, the cross that changes everything. And then chapter 28, the resurrection that changes everything again. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. And this night we get to partake in the life of Jesus. And maybe you've kind of grown a little stale or maybe you've fallen asleep or maybe there's like um, just a lethargy to you. As we take communion this night, pray a simple prayer. Enliven me to you once again. Jesus, may you be so beautiful that you capture my heart. What I found is people that really serve well are doing it because they know Jesus is so beautiful, that he's so good and so wonderful. That's why you serve so strongly. It's not guilt. It's not manipulation. It's not these other things that always just fade. It's Jesus, you're so beautiful. That in the middle of this tribulation passage, your heart immediately breaks for pregnant women and infants. I love that. Matthew chapter 24 makes me just love Jesus more. So as you partake, say, God, enliven me to your son, Jesus, again. And so, Lord, we thank you for communion. That we get to do this often in remembrance of you. That we're to do it until you return. That's our celebration. That one day the trumpet will sound and you will gather us and we will be fully human where cancer of sin and mistakes have, has eaten away at who we are, that's going to be repaired completely. Every tear will be wiped away. We'll have purpose. We'll have kingdoms to rule over, five cities, 10 cities. We'll have things to do that blow us away and we'll be with you. So I pray as we partake in your body, I pray that you would in each one of us afresh this evening, make us partakers in your kingdom that we would be colonies of heaven, outposts of it right now in our homes, in our neighborhoods, at work, at the park, in Walmart, in Fred Meyer, in Bymar. We'd be outposts of the kingdom, living a different kind of life, reconciliation, turning the other cheek, loving our enemies as ourselves. that we'd be living that kingdom. So we need you to empower us. So may, may we dine on your life and may it be infused into us this evening, I pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.